right, so uh, it sounds like we don't have any further announcements. That's it. So at this point in time, Thank you. All right. Well, uh, happy Columbus Day. How many of you knew it was Columbus Day? Good. All right. Um, so before we get started, let me say a word of prayer. But, I, but before I pray, I want to um, I want to give an apology, and I want to warn you. Uh, tonight is going to be a little longer than we have ever had before. Okay. So. We are getting started a little earlier than we normally do, so, so that will help. But uh, I'm going to try to go fast, so try to uh, put your thinking caps on so you can follow along. If you need to hear it again, uh, you can listen to it online, okay? All right, uh, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship together and to open up your word. Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Uh, Lord, speak through me, and Lord, because of the, the content that we have to cover tonight, the ground that we have to cover, I ask that you would just help me to speak clearly, with a clear, a clear speech, clear mind, and I pray that you would help everyone here to be able to understand uh, what you want them to under understand, and that uh, nothing would be uh, over their head, but uh, that it would just be clear to them uh, by the end of the evening. And uh, Lord, we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, yeah, I think it's uh, Columbus Day today. You know, probably, you probably remember school and learning about uh, Columbus and, and uh, coming to uh, found America, 1492. Uh, he sailed from Europe to the New World. Many followed his path and looking for riches and new opportunities here in America. Uh, there was a small group uh, many years later that arrived on the shores of Massachusetts in November of 1620. And uh, they came seeking for something that they could not find in the old world, and it was freedom of conscience. Uh, whenever the state seeks to enforce religious beliefs on its citizens, persecution results. The pilgrims, they found this uh, to be painfully true in England and later in Holland, and so they sought freedom on the shores of America. The colony founded by the pilgrims, they attracted others seeking relief from the fines and from the imprisonments, from the tortures and persecution there in the old world, from the old world monarchies. Eventually, as many as 20,000 Puritans inhabited the Plymouth colony and the areas around it. But the idea of complete religious freedom was hard to grasp. Around the late 1700s, uh, people were fleeing for. Uh, from religious persecution, and that when they settled, they were, uh, they or when they settled there, they wanted to find a place where where they could worship freely uh, according to the dictates of their own conscience, and so uh, they they fled religious persecution and they came to America so they could worship freely. But that's not what happened. Uh, although they did worship freely, uh, there are some who, when they disagreed with them, uh, they. Uh, were persecuted as well. And so even here in America, there was religious persecution back then. Even though they came here trying to get away from that, they inflicted persecution on others who disagreed with them. And so a kind of church state uh, was formed, and all people were required to support the clergy. The magistrates were authorized to suppress heresy, and uh, that is anything that disagreed with the doctrines uh, that the Puritans held. Roger Williams immigrated to Plymouth 11 years after, after it had become a colony, and he, became, he came with conviction that God had more things to reveal from his word about the Reformation, and that the Reformation was to be continued. So he expressed these views and brought, uh, he, uh, brought with him the charge of heresy, and he was banished from Plymouth. Uh, alone in the woods in the middle of winter, he finally found refuge with uh, some, uh, some Native Americans there that he had befriended earlier. And he found, uh, or eventually he found his way to the coast of, Ner let me see if I can pronounce this right, Na Naragaset, something like that, Naragaset Bay. So you can uh, not quote me on that one. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, so he, he started a new colony there, and it, 
And, uh, and so for the first time, a new, he's, he implemented a new fundamental principle, principle in the United States. And here it is up on the screen. Every man should have liberty to worship God according to the light of his own conscience. And so the little state of Rhode Island, the smallest in what uh, became known as the, uh, the United States of America, it developed the principle that would eventually find its way into the Constitution. And here it is. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And so does the Bible from which this principle was derived predict the rise and future of, an, of the nation that for hundreds of years has been a refuge for those seeking the freedom to worship according to the conscience? Does it predict a time when that principle will eventually be replaced with the same principle of church and state that ruled Europe during the Dark Ages? Well, we're, the Bible helps us to find these answers. In the book of Revelation, it clearly reveals these things. It reveals the beast. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 13 today. And, uh, the, because the beast persecuted Christians, and the Bible tells us, uh, how that happened, when it happened, and uh, it also tells us it's going to happen again. But remember that the book uh, of Revelation is the revelation of whom? Of Jesus Christ. That's correct. So Revelation is not a book that focuses on the beast. It's a book that focuses on Jesus. However, we, we, we need to... Um, we need to remember that even though it focuses on Jesus, it also does talk about the beast. And so... The book of Revelation, it does two things. It reveals Jesus and His truth, and then it also exposes Satan's deceptions. And so we can't expose Satan's deceptions unless we know what the truth is. And so we're going to do both uh, here tonight. But Revelation talks about a struggle. It talks about a battle, a universal conflict between good and evil. And in light of, of all of this, the final battle between Christ and Satan, there is a struggle between true worship and false worship. There will be a f true revival in the end times and a false revival uh, that takes place. And uh, there are two beasts in Revelation 13, and we're going to discuss both of them tonight. So are you ready to begin? All right. So Revelation chapter 13, uh, we read about the beast that rises up out of the sea. Well, who is this beast? The Bible says that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, and that's 1 Peter uh, 1, 20, 20 and 21. And so the book of Revelation, it clearly unfolds who the beast is. It answers our questions. Whoever this beast is, do you agree that we should carefully study the Bible to find out all the ways to identify it and accept only the identification that fits every one of the specific details that the Bible gives? Yes. Not just a few sensational ones, right? We want all of them. And, uh, and so... if. If uh, let's, we're going we're gonna to talk about six different points, and if I tell you, well, you know, this power over here, it fits five out of the six, would it be correct, or should we find a, a, a power that fits all six? A power that fits all six, right? Not five out of the six. It must be all all six. And so, but notice how this beast is described here. Revelation thirteen one and two says, "Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast." rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. So you can count the, the, the beast over there, you can count his heads, he's got seven heads, and on one of those heads there's ten horns, and, and uh, crowns on those horns as well. But it uh, goes on to say, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The waters which you saw were, hang on, I missed something. Uh, so the Bible, just, it describes this dreadful beast up here, which comes out of the sea. It talks about a beast as a mighty power. And so then we need to review and what, uh, to understand a little bit what a, a, uh, a beast uh, represents here. And so in Revelation 17, verse 15, uh, and also what the waters represent, it says, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And so the waters they represent in Bible, 
people in Bible prophecy. And when the beast comes up out of the sea, it comes up out of a populated area of this earth. It comes up among people areas it is, that is among nations. And so when the Bible talks about the sea beast in Revelation as being like four beasts, it says it's like, the, like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard, and, and a dragon. What do beasts in Bible prophecy represent? Well, Daniel 7, 23, this is a review. Uh, this is, it says that the fourth beast shall be like a fourth kingdom on the earth. And so it is clear that a beast represents a kingdom or a political power. And some people are misled and they think that the beast is an evil person. But the Bible describes it as not a person, but as it as a power. And so they're, they're thinking that a single person who must be a universal dictator or an evil mastermind uh, with a desire to dominate the world and oppress Christians, but that's not what the Bible describes. The Bible describes it as a power. And so the Bible says that these four beasts are four kingdoms. The beast represents a political or religious power. And according to the Bible, it does, uh, it does not represent an individual person. These powers can be political or religious. As the Bible describes this beast in Revelation 13, it, it goes on in, to say in, in verse 2, the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And so whoever the, the beast power is, he gets his authority and his seat uh, of government from a dragon-like beast. And so you rem remember in Daniel chapter 7, the Bible talks about uh, a lion, and it says that the lion, uh, the kings of the beast, uh, and what the kings of the beast represent, it represents Babylon. You remember that? Remember how uh, the, the lion represents Babylon? It talks about a bear, and it represents Medo-Persia. talks about a gr uh, Greece representing uh, the leopard-like beast, and then pagan Rome uh, that represents the dragon-like beast. Okay, you can see up on the screen, you can see up, up here on our banner over here. And, uh, and so remember in Bible prophecy, God uses animals to describe nations and governments. But who did pagan Rome represent? Okay, so you have all of the four beasts here up on the, the banner here. You have all of the four beasts and you have pagan Rome, which was this beast. But then when it split, the, what's represented by those ten horns, or in Daniel chapter 2, it's represented by the ten toes, that is the dividing of Rome. And then there was a little horn that came up out of it, which was pagan uh, or sorry, or papal Rome. All right, so it went from pagan Rome to papal Rome. And so, who did pagan Rome give its power and throne and great authority to? Well, you don't just have to take my word for it. We're going to six identifying characteristics of who this religious system uh, talked about and political religious system talked about and mentioned. And so, the first clue, which helps us to identify who this power is, it is a power that received its seat or of its government, author, government or authority from ancient pagan Rome. And so let's go to one of the most learned professors of all Roman history and see if history lines up with the Bible. Do you think it will? Yeah. I think it will too. Professor uh, Labian Lab Labianca, professor of history at the University of Rome, it says, to the succession of the Caesars came the succession of the pontiffs in Rome. When Constantine left Rome, he gave his seat to the pontiff. That's right. And so now what does the Bible say? The, it says the dragon gave him his what? His seat, his power and great authority. Uh, so back then the Roman Empire was falling apart. It was crumbling. And Constantine recognized that soon his empire would be overthrown by the Germanic invasions uh, from the north. And so Europe was uh, carved up by these uh, invading armies, and it was being divided, just like Bible prophecy predicted. So Constantine had to flee Rome, and he went to Turkey, and there he established Constantinople, where his new headquarters and uh, his capital city uh, are. Or were and so rather than leaving Rome without a visible leader he gave his seat of his governmental authority to the Pope of Rome in fact in in uh, Stanley's history page 40 it says this the popes filled the place of the Vatican emperors of Rome inheriting their power prestige and titles from paganism the papacy is but the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire 
sitting crowned upon its grave. And so tonight, we'll look at the clear teachings of the Bible. The Bible makes the identification of the beast, power, plain, and history verifies it. So in our lecture series, it's not uh, our desire to, in any way, to offend or hurt any, any individual or any group of people. There are many fine people and wonderful, uh, God-loving, God-fearing people in the Roman church who love Jesus. And so they are, they are committed Christians. And this prophecy is not, about, is not talking about individuals. It's talking about a hierarchy that abused its power. And so the beast is not a person. All right? And so if you don't remember anything that I say, remember that. Okay? The beast is not a person. It's a, it's a power, a hierarchy that has abused its power and that we are not talking about any specific person or any specific people or people group. Okay, because we love our, our Roman Catholic friends and, um, and there are many of them who I believe are God-fearing people who love Jesus and I believe that they will be in heaven as well. Okay, so is everybody on board? Everybody, everybody clear on that? Okay, all right, so the beast of Revelation 13 describes a religious political system that grew up out of Rome. It would gradually compromise the truth of God's word. And the traditions would slip into the Christian church and Protestant communions would accept those traditions. And so here is a second characteristic in uh, Revelation 13, 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. And so number two, eventually this power would become a worldwide religious system. And the third characteristic here in, in verse 5, it says, And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And so most people, when they think of blasphemy, uh, they think of someone openly cursing God. But we think of somebody uh, denying the existence of God. But that's not actually what the Bible defines as, as blasphemy. In Scripture, blasphemy occurs when individuals declare that they are equal to God or that they have the privileges, privileges of God. And so let's look at uh, John 10, verse 33. Jesus was actually accused of blasphemy. And it says, the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. And so why did the Jews want to stone Jesus? Because he claimed to be God. And was Jesus God? Yes, he was. And so he was not a blasphemer because his claim to be equal with God was actually true. And so we simply ask the, the, if the Roman church has ever claimed to be God on play in, uh, to hold God's place on earth. And uh, we're, here are the encyclical letters that directly quote uh, the papacy of uh, Leo XIII. He says, uh, we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. And so I don't know any other organization out there that, that, that does this. Uh, the, the history of the Roman church, it speaks for itself. And uh, look at another aspect of blasphemy in Mark 2, verse 7. It says, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so they say that Christ is a blasphemer because he claims to forgive sins. Now let me ask you this. Can Jesus forgive sins? Yes, yes he can. And so why could he forgive sins? That's right, because he had the privileges and the prerogatives of God. And so, but there's a, a book di uh, called Dignity and Duties of the Priests, and, uh, which each of the priests have to read to understand what their duties are. Listen to what it says. It says, God, holds, or God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priest and either not to pardon or to pardon, according as they refuse or give absolution. The sentence of the priest proceeds and God subscribes to it. But friends, Jesus is our only priest. Amen. Amen. He stands before the throne of God interceding for you and me. Amen. There is no other man that can intercede for us like Christ can. Amen. Uh, Jesus is our only Savior. Jesus is our only Redeemer. Amen? And Revelation is leading people back to Jesus. 
not to a man-made system of religion filled with human traditions. And so the third identifying characteristic we looked up was claims to be equal, equal with God, which is blasphemy. So the fourth characteristic is found in Revelation 13, 7. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And so this power would lead to a union of church and state in a time period called the Dark Ages. Now, I don't know if you remember us talking about uh, when we talked about Daniel chapter 2 and the, the toes that were of uh, iron, and, or sorry, the feet that were made of iron and clay. And first it started out as it was the potter's clay. And then when it mixed with the iron, it became miry clay, dirty clay, right? And so that was talking about how the church and the state uh, coming together made the church dirty, right? And so here we see it coming to fruition in, during the Dark Ages when this happened, when church and state united. So Bible-believing Christians would be condemned to death for their beliefs. Does history bear this out? Well, yes, it does. Did the church and state unite under Rome and persecute those who do not go along with its teachings? The answer, sadly, is yes. So the fourth characteristic is it would be a persecuting power. And the Bible is very plain when it talks about this. Uh, you see, this is an issue that God is dealing with. This is an issue of true and false worship. And so God, uh, He is leading us to Christ. He is leading us back to His Word. He is leading us to exalt Jesus in our own lives and in ways that many have not understood. But rem and remember what we read earlier. All right, uh, in Revelation 13, 5, it says, And He was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 40 and two months. All right, so what is this all about, this authority? You know, some have said that mathematics is an exact science. Well, notice these two mathematical proofs that identify the beast's power. So what about these 42 months? In Bible prophecy, remember, our our rule that one prophetic day equals one literal year, and there's the, the references there, Ezekiel 4, 6, and uh, Numbers 14, 34, which both say, I've given you a day for a year, or, or I have appointed a day for a year. And so if we're talking about 42 months, then let's do some calculations. There are 30 days in a, in a biblical prophetic month, and so 30 times 42 would come to 7, or sorry, 1,260 days. And so, but if prophetic day equals a literal year, then the time period mentioned here would be 1,260 years. Well, let's see if history bears this out and if it, if, uh, it actually lines up with, with history also. And uh, you'll find that it does. The prophecy declares that this power would exist for 1,260 years, then would suffer a deadly wound. On exactly 538 A.D., the last of the tribes battling against uh, Papal Rome were defeated. Remember how we talked about in Revelation, or sorry, Daniel chapter 7, and how three horns would be uprooted when this little horn came to power? Well, those three little horns were finally all uprooted, and that's exactly when this little horn came into power, and that happened in A.D. 538. The prophecy begins at A.D. 538, when Emperor, uh, Roman Emperor Justinian gave the Pope of Rome religious and civil authority. The papacy would dominate Europe for 1260 years and then would receive a deadly wound. And so this brings us all the way to 1798. What happened in 1798? Did anything significant happen in 1798? Well, who was the great political leader in Europe in 1798. Anybody, any historians know? I'll, I'll give you a hint. Napoleon, that's right. All right, so Napoleon, he, he looked south and he felt challenged by the Pope of Rome. And so he sent his general, Berthier, uh, to Rome to take the Pope captive. Berthier entered Rome in 1798 exactly as the prophecy had predicted. He took the Pope captive, brought him back to France, and the Pope died in captivity in France uh, sometime after that. 
so what does history tell us about these re remarkable events here? Well, look here in church history, page 24. It says, the murder of a Frenchman in Rome in 1798 gave the French an excuse for occupying the eternal city and putting an end to the papal temporal power. The aged pontiff himself was carried off into exile of, to Valence. The enemies of the church rejoiced. The last pope, they declared, had resigned. And so as prophecy accurately predicted, the papacy received a deadly wound in 1798 when the pope was taken captive and then died in captivity thereafter. So what does the Bible say then uh, in Revelation 13, verse 3? And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And so this church and state that had reigned for, uh, church state power that had reigned for 1260 years from 538 to 1798 AD, they, uh, they had full political, full religious power and they had been taken off of their seat. They no longer had this religious and political power and so they received a mortal wound. Goes on to say, and his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. And so the Bible says that the beast power would reign uh, during, that during this time, 1260 years, 538 to 1798, and indeed it did. In 1798 it would suffer this deadly wound and the prophecy was fulfilled precisely as the Bible had predicted. Amen? And so sometime in the future the deadly wound would be healed though. And history and current events indicate that Rome is once again prominent in world politics. Number five, uh, uh, it says it reigns for 1260 years, and, and so we see that it fits that one as well. The Bible goes on to say in Revelation 13, 18, it says, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now, the, in the Bible, Numbers have significance. For example, the number seven always indicates perfection. The number six, on the other hand, indicates apostasy or rebellion. And one of the official titles of the papacy is Vicarius Philae Dei, or Vicar of the Son of God. And so I, let me explain the title to you a little bit. And the, the title is in Latin, Vicarius Philae Dei. It means vicar the Son of God, or vice God on earth. And so scripture says, here is wisdom. Let him who hath understanding count the number of the beast, and it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. And so the number has to be linked to the head of the organization as part of his official title. And the official title here of Vicarious Philae Day, it's a, if it's a Roman power, then we, it would seem obvious that we should use Roman numerals to discover its meaning. Roman numerals give uh, numerical calculations here, and you may remember some Roman numerals from school or, or from, uh, from other things, but um, V equals 5 and 1 equals I equals 1, C equals 100, etc. And, and so when you calculate all of that out, it comes to uh, for 112 and then plus 53 plus 501 comes to 666. It adds up uh, perfectly there. And so if you were just going to go on this one uh, thing alone, remember it's not 5 out of 6, it's 6 out of 6. Not, and not just uh, uh, taking a few here or there, but we want all of them. And so for example, if you just took this one, you could apply it to just about anything out there. I think Prince Charles of Wales is one that you could apply it to and it would come out to 666. So that's why when you apply all of them together and you find that this one also fits, then that means something significant. And so this power, it would grow up out of Rome and would first get its authority from pagan Rome. And the papacy did just that. Secondly, it would be a worldwide power of worship. Well, the Roman church is just that. Third, its leaders would claim to claim equality with God and the ability to forgive sin and the Roman churches and priests and prelates do exactly that. 
Fourth, at times the church would persecute, uh, and history records that they did exactly that. Fifth, it would be a power that would reign for 1260 years, then it would receive a deadly wound. We know from history that the prophecy has been fulfilled in this one as well. And then sixth, the most exalted title would be uh, 666. And so all of them are completely filled in the Roman church and uh, the Roman power there. Remember, it's not the people. It is the hierarchy. It is the system of worship there that points out who the little horn power is of Daniel 7 and the sea beast is of Revelation 13. And so uh, in Revelation 13, starting in 16 and 17, it, mentioned, it talks about the mark of the beast. Uh, and so we're going to discuss more of, the mark of the, who the mark of the beast is tomorrow and how this, this power here will unite, or these two powers of the land, sea beast and the land beast, how they unite together to try to get us to break God's commandments specifically the first four commandments. And so we're going to see that tomorrow. We're also going to look at what the seal of God is and what the mark of the beast is uh, there. So you're not going to want to miss tomorrow. But look, uh, look here, just in case you think, well, this is uh, maybe my interpretation or something. This is actually not. Every single one of the reformers agreed with what I've just told, presented to you thus far. Every single one of them. Look at some of these quotes up here uh, from Martin Luther. He says, we are of the conviction that the papacy is the seat of the real Antichrist. I didn't say it, Martin Luther did. John Calvin, he says, I deny him to be the vicar of Christ. He is Antichrist. I deny him to be head of the church. So, I didn't say that. John Calvin said it. John Knox says the, that tyranny, or that tyranny, uh, which the Pope himself has for so many ages exercised over the church the very Antichrist and son of perdition of whom Paul speaks. John Wesley, he said it as well, Roman papacy, he, the Antichrist, is in, emphatical, in an emphatical sense the man of sin. Okay, so every single one of the reformers agreed on this, uh, what I've presented to you thus far. This is not uh, in invention of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and what we're, say, what we're trying to tell you, we're agreeing with Scripture, which all of the Reformers also agreed with Scripture and have pointed, pointed this out. Does that make sense? And this is actually the only thing that they agreed on 100%. You know, when it talked about uh, grace and grace alone, faith and faith alone, uh, Scripture and Scripture alone, by Christ and Christ alone, all of those things, they agreed on those, but they... They uh, disagreed on some minor details on, on some of those things. But this one, it was 100% unanimous. Revelation 13:11. Okay, now we're going to get into the other power, the, the, um, this new power that is described. In uh, Revelation 13, verse 11, it says, And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And so, uh, so the... This is another beast. It's distinct from the first beast that is mentioned in verses 1 through 10. And according to the Bible, what does a beast represent in prophecy? A kingdom. That's correct. A kingdom or a power. And so now there are three questions that we need to ask uh, this, uh, about this new beast that we're studying. Okay. Some in, these are important. These are significant. It's going to help us identify who it is. And so where does this, this power arise? Um, this first beast, remember the first beast rose up out of the sea. Right? The second beast rose up out of the earth. Here it says, and the, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And so if the sea represents a populated area, you guys remember that? Right? And then the opposite of the sea is the earth. Right? So would, uh, this would represent a sparsely populated area. Does that make sense? All right. Everybody make sense or just, just lend up here? Everybody good? Raise your hand so I know you're with me. Good. Okay. All right. So this new beast or nation, it comes up out of the earth, or a relatively unpopulated area compared to the nations of Europe. The beast arises in some area of the world that, would that was precisely unsettled by nations previously mentioned in prophecy, right? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, okay? And so this is a, a new area. And then when does this power arise? Well, it says here in Revelation 13:10, "He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity." 
So the second beast in Revelation 13 arises at the same time that the first beast is going into captivity. Does that make sense? Okay, so the first beast going into captivity, and then the, the second beast comes up out of the earth. So we studied earlier that the first beast represents papal Rome. You guys remember that? All right, just a few seconds ago. All right, and the first beast in, uh, in Revelation 13 would get its, its authority from the dragon, pagan Rome, and the papacy did. The first beast would be a worldwide system of worship. The papacy is. The first beast would claim that its priest had the authority to forgive sins. The papacy does. It would reign for 1260 years. Historically, the papacy fits this picture exactly. Uh, although the Bishop of Rome uh, existed previously before 538 AD, his supreme reign began in 538 AD. The papacy was to rule for 1260 years, and then according to prophecy of Reve uh, uh, this is according to prophecy there in Revelation 13, and in 1798, 1260 years after, then uh, we had the General Berthier, uh, the French general sent by Napoleon to take the Pope captive, right? So this is just reiterating it in case you missed it the first time. Uh, and Revelation 13.10 says that the first beast, the papacy, would go into captivity. He did in 1798. Then the second beast in Revelation 13 would be rising in a previously un unknown area of the world around the time that the first beast went into captivity in 1798. So Bible students for decades have seen the unique fulfillment of this prophecy in the United States. And how does this power arise? Well, it says, Revelation 13, 11, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. And uh, in his book, um, G.A. Townsend's book, uh, The New World Compared to the Old, he says about the rise of America here, The mystery of her coming forth from vacancy. Like a silent seed, he grew up. Into, we grew into an empire. And so it came out of the earth like a silent seed. What an apt description here. Uh, the writer of Uriah Smith of Daniel and Revelation, back in the 1800s, he wrote this, Emerging amid the silence of the earth, adding daily to its power and strength. And so here's another distinguishing characteristic is that the beast has two horns, like a lamb. These horns also do not have crowns on them like the other horns did uh, on the first beast. And so crowns indicate kingly authority. The absence of the crowns indicate freedom. And the second beast's power does not come from a king. It has two horns, a demo uh, demo democratic, sorry, democratic and republican form of government. It has two horns, two external principles it derives its power from. So the Statue of Liberty in the New York Harbor is a symbol of the principles of freedom of conscience that has long been an ideal of the citizens of the United States. Friends, let me tell you, I am a patriot. I love my country. I love the United States of America. Uh, I served my country in the military because I love my country, and I still love my country, but I'm just telling you what the Bible is saying here and putting it all together, okay? All right, so, but the scene changes here in Revelation 13, 11. It reveals the changes of the characteristics of this beast, right? It says, then I saw another beast flying, or sorry, coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And so he speaks like a dragon. In other words, so ultimately someday this religious freedom is removed. How does any nation speak? Any nation speaks through its laws, right? And uh, to speak like a dragon, then, is to use the laws of, of land and political influence to war against the principles of God. Does the book of Revelation describe a series of events that lead up to these final days when totalitarianism of, or oppression rules, where the rights of the minority will be trampled on? And does the Bible indicate how that might happen. Well, notice here in Revelation uh, 13, verse 12, it says, And he exercises all the, th the authority of the first beast in his presence.
presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So this second beast, the United States of America, exercises the authority of the first beast, the papacy, whose deadly wound was healed. And so there is a church and state union. Okay, you have the first beast, the church, the uh, land beast, the earth beast, uh, the state, and you have them coming together in union. There is a political religious alliance, and, the, and there is an erosion of religious liberty. The book of Revelation says that something unusual would happen. It says that the devil would do something to create this alliance. Look here in verse 13. He performs great signs so that he, even he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And so he is referring to Satan. Great fire. Uh, some people are confused by the symbolism of fire, but in the Old Testament, a pillar of fire led God's people by night. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, between the two cherubim, the two angels there in the sanctuary, God's presence was manifested by fire. And fire is a symbol of God's presence. And so, but this is a false fire that this is talking about. The devil says that he or it says the devil calls fire down and performs signs and wonders. And uh, you also remember in the in the New Testament there when the the uh, tongues of fire that uh, that happened at Pentecost, right? So this is uh, a false uh, Holy Spirit movement that has taken place. It's unholy fire. And uh, here's a movement to unite all religions and get legislators to sign laws that pass religions, religious decrees based on signs, wonders, and false miracles and false tongues of fire. And I'm gonna, we're going to get into a little bit more of that happening today. And so basically between today and, and uh, tomorrow, we're going to see where we are at in history, or sorry, in, in prophecy today. Okay, and so he, he receives those who dwell on the earth, it says here, and, and uh, by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. And so it says that he deceives those that dwell on the earth. How might this deception be carried out by the devil? Well, in America today, sadly, there are uh, many serious social problems, and I don't have to tell you. Uh, this, everybody is aware of this, drugs and alcohol are destroying uh, many people, many of our youth. Uh, sexual immorality is very common. Uh, you know, it's, it's nothing to, watch, to see something on, on television now that, uh, that shows these things. And you just, you know, many years ago you'd say, oh man, why would they put that on TV? But today it's like, oh yeah, that's just, that's just the world that we live in today. Uh, the national, national debt is high. Natural disasters are happening all the time. Hurricanes and tornadoes, fires and floods, earthquakes have ravaged many cities and taken their toll unlike anything that we have seen before. And if these conditions continued to worsen, do you see how it might be possible at a time of national crisis for Satan to initiate a false religious revival based on false miracles to unite people under his banner. Do you see how that could happen? Okay, well, it's happening. <laughs> it's happening. I'm going to get to it here in a little bit. Uh, and so do you see how, well, how well-intentioned people could pass religious legislation and what that might do? All right, it goes on to say here, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And so our text describes an image of the beast. What is the image of the beast? An image is a likeness of. The Bible says that the second beast, America, will make an image or a likeness of the first beast, which is the papacy. In other words, there will be a political, religious uh, union of church and state. Uh, and when that occurs, religious practices will be enforced by law. And they are under papal supremacy during the Dark Ages, uh, just like during the Dark Ages. In uh, Revelation 18, it details some of these events. Uh, here are the, uh, these are the events that, surrounded, that surround the union of the church and state. 
And here's what gets well-meaning religious leaders involved. So what does Satan do, though? He works false miracles, remember? He works uh, false wonders, and he gives uh, false signs, and these false signs, they motivate religious leaders and push, to push laws uh, of sovereign worship in America. Revelation 18.5, it says, Her sins have reached to heaven. In other words, at the time, at the end time, society becomes like Sodom and Gomorrah. It becomes like the days of Noah. And the religious leaders will say the only way that we can get, save America from going down is if we put pressure on the legislatures to pass laws to bring us back to God. And the average American says, that's right. Look at our country, it's going down the drain, and we need to get it back. So we need laws that will enforce people to do this. You see how subtle Satan is? The miracles begin to be worked in the churches, and which are not fully following God's word. And so these miracles cause people to, to say, look, this is the power of God. But why is Satan doing all of this? He's doing this to get church, the, the union of church and state back together. Notice the second thing says here, Revelation 18, verse 7, she has lived luxuriously. And so it's a time when the economy is booming. The economy booms, but sin is prolific here. It's a time of great luxury. Sounds like what's going on today. The third thing is in Revelation, or in Revelation 18, verse 8. She experiences natural disasters. And so this one kind of sets the tone. It sets the stage. Natural disasters will come. Earthquakes, fires, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, and cyclones. God's judgment begin to fall on the land, Revelation 18, verse 10, there, number 4. And so are we beginning to, to grasp the scene that is taking place? What's taking place before this church and state union is what we're talking about here. And I don't know if you can see, but these things are happening. These things, we're, we're experiencing all of these right now. Something dramatic happens, though, in Revelation 18, verse 17. It says, "...her riches come to nothing." And so in the time of economic luxury, at the time when there is rising crime and violence, and at the time of natural disasters, the economic bottom just falls out. The stock market goes down, and then what happens? Well, religious leaders begin to say, we need to get back to God. We need to come to, uh, together in unity, and church and state must unite again. Spiritual decline natural disasters, special chaos, and ep economic difficulties lead up to the church and state union. According to the book of Revelation, Satan takes advantage of this situation by introducing a false spiritual revival under the auspices of the Antichrist. That's what the Bible says that Satan does. In Revelation 13, verse 13 and 14, says he performs great signs so that, even, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. A religious revival at a time of economic difficulty. People are rejoicing in the so-called miracles. People, are putting people begin to put pressure on legislatures and notice what happens at that time. Revelation 16, verse 14. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of, the God, of God Almighty. And so now don't, don't misunderstand me here. The Bible, does the Bible predict that there will be a mighty genuine revival of the spirit of Jesus uh, before he comes? Yes, it does. And so the earth will be enlightened with God's glory in Revelation 18, verse 1. The Holy Spirit will be poured out powerfully. The sick will be healed. But it also indicates Satan, knowing the true revival is going to come, he stirs up the masses uh, of a false revival. He, uh, he leads that false revival in, at a time of chaos and puts pressure on political leaders to sign treaties and pacts that ultimately legislate morality. But friends, you cannot legislate morality. 
It has to come from God. And so the question is, how can we tell the difference then between true and false revival? Isn't, isn't that really the issue? We need to know what the, how to tell the difference? Well, the Bible tells us in, in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not what they say. It's whether they are leading and living an obedient life. And friends, we've talked about this before, that love, it always leads to obedience. And so any, anybody can say, Lord, Lord, but if they love Christ, then they'll love to do what he says. Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And so many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And so notice that many will say, uh, What's that first word? Many. <laughs> Many, uh, they did three things. They prophesied in His name, they cast out demons in His name, and they did many signs and worked miracles in His name. And so this must be of God then because this must be true revival, right? Wrong. Look what the Bible says. It says, And then I will declare to, to them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you who practice... What is that last word there? Lawlessness. So they're prophesying in His name, but He never knew them. They're working miracles in His name, but He never knew them. They're casting out demons in His name, but they never knew Him. And so then what did He say? He said, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The evidence is not what they claim to do in His name. The evidence is whether they have allowed the grace of God to lead them to obedience and to follow Jesus Christ all the way to keeping His commandments and having the faith of Jesus. So you see, friends, that Satan is going to work false miracles and that the crowd is going to be stirred up. Great charismatic leaders are going to arise. They're going to cry out that America is going down. That they're going to cry out that religious laws, uh, that they need more religious laws to legislate morality. But the Bible gives us a principle that will help us know the difference between these true and false revivals. Here it is, you guys. Don't, don't miss this text here. This is an important text. Write it down or something. It says, Isaiah 8, verse 20. This is one that can help you distinguish from true and false uh, from truth and from error, it says, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is how much light in them? No light, no light in them. There are many religious movements that have a lot of love. But it doesn't say that there is no truth there. Many religious movements have some truth. The devil wouldn't deceive anyone if it didn't have just a little bit of truth. It doesn't say that there is no power because the devil has plenty of power. The Bible says to the law, in other words, to the Ten Commandments, the testimony of Scripture. If they are not teaching in harmony with God's law, if they're not teaching in harmony with the rest of Scripture, it is because there is no light in them. Friends, we need light in the darkness. Light is what you follow. On, the, on a dark night when, that uh, you need light. And so don't be concerned if this movement, it claims to have power. Don't be concerned if this movement is uh, the popular majority. But what you're looking for is light. The light of God's word that shines on his law. Amen. The light of God's word that shines God's truth. And so let me ask you this question here. What vehicle did the devil use in the days of ancient Rome to unite paganism and Christianity. Do you remember? Remember Rome was falling apart uh, with Constantine there? And so the pagans and the Christians, they had their differences, but the venerable day of the sun, it united them. You remember that? And so you think history might repeat itself? Well, I wonder if the devil would do that again in our age. Let's look at the past and learn some interesting things about our future. Here's a book called Two Babylons by Reverend Alexander Bishop. It's a really fascinating 
interesting and very informative book here. As he says, to conciliate the pagans of nominal Christianity, Rome, pursuing its usual policy, took measures to get the Christian and pagan festivals amalgamated. What does that mean? Coming together, right? All right, and to get paganism and, Christiani and Christianity now far sunk in idolatry in this as in so many other things to do what? Shake hands. Paganism and Christianity. In those early centuries, they shook hands together. They united together under around one thing, a common day of worship on Sunday. The Bible predicts that there will be a union of church and state even in America and that the religious leaders will lead out in this. You might say, but no, that is impossible. That could never happen. Well, let me take you back to a mini-crisis that we can identify with. Uh, if you were alive in May of 17, nine, uh, 17, in 1976, <laughs> in 1976, uh, there was a gas shortage in America. There were long lines of cars at gas pumps waiting to get just a little bit of gas. Harold Linzel was the editor of Christianity Today, and during that year he suggested a proposal for solving the gas problem. This is what he said. All businesses, including gasoline stations and restaurants, should close when? Every Sunday. Hmm. By force of legislative fiat, the duly elected officials of the people. And so he said, look, we have a big crisis in America. We can't buy enough gas. And so if all the Christians would just put pressure on their legislatures, then we, legislators, we would, uh, we'll just use Sunday as a family day. We'll save gas. We'll bring America back to God that way, and, that, and then we'll solve the gas crisis also. Just not too long ago, I remember seeing a commercial by, uh, uh, I don't want to say the name, anyways, uh, a certain, certain company, uh, what was it called, um, car company, and uh, they, were, they were saying if you just rest on Sunday and use that as your family day to stay at home, then you won't have to uh, use up gas, and that'll help our climate control. Climate control is pushing us in that direction today. And so this mini-crisis here is, and just think of when a major crisis hits America, that it would easily, they'll easily follow in that direction. Look here, Revelation 13, 15 says, Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as who would not worship the beast to be killed. Prophecy predicts our freedoms will be taken away and no one will be able to buy or sell. Many are pointing to man's industrialization of the planet as causing the climate change that affects many especially the poor of the world. Well, in June 18 of 2015, Pope Francis, he issued an encyclical on climate change. But before we get there, there was something even more recent. Here on September 12 of 2010, how long ago was that? It was a month ago. Yeah, this is, we're in October. This was one month ago when this happened. He summons world leaders to sign a global pact to take place in, uh, on May 14 of 2020. Now, it's, what's interesting is that he references his encyclical letter as being something that they will look at together. And it says here, uh, his encyclical letter says, Sunday, will, like the Jewish Sabbath, is, even though there is no Jewish Sabbath, it's the Bible Sabbath, anyways, is meant to be a day which heals our relationships with God, with ourselves, with others, and with the world. Sunday is the day of resurrection, the first day of creation. 
whose first fruits are the Lord's risen humanity, the pledge of the final transfiguration of all created reality. It also proclaims man's eternal rest in God. In this way, Christian spirituality incorporates the value of relaxation and festivity. And so this was in 2015. And then, of course, the one that happened a month ago, he's referring back to this as something that they're going to discuss together. And in that video, he is imploring everyone to put pressure on their legislatures, their, their leaders, religious leaders, and their, uh, their state leaders uh, to come on May 14th of 2020 to discuss this and how we can help uh, climate change. Interesting. And so this is dangerous according to the Bible. And we should not cry out to governments of the world to legislate morality to bring revival. How did God say revival would come? Well, here it is. 2 Chronicles 7.14. Beautiful text to commit to memory. It says, If my people who are called by not my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so God is calling for revival. But he says, if my people pray, and, or if my people humble themselves and pray and repent of their sins and seek my face, I will send revival. Amen? Amen? And that revival, it will come because we can trust in the word of God. Amen? The revival begins in your heart, friends. It begins in my heart. It begins on our knees with our faces to the floor, asking God to forgive us of our sins, repenting of our lust, of our adultery, of our anger, of our selfishness and our greed and our materialism. God's revival is not a revival legislated by law. It's a revival of the heart. God's revival is to come deep from within us, not from the government-legislated actions. And ladies and gentlemen, when the revival comes from the heart, we do not need a state to pass the law to keep the first day of the week holy. Because when that revival comes from our hearts and we are saved by grace, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so guess what's going to happen is we're going to keep his commandments because we, out of love we, is, is how we do it. There are two revivals, the false revival and the true. There is a false revival for the majority. The false revival is based on signs and wonders at the time of economic crisis and difficulty. And the, this false revival it grab, gathers large numbers of Christians to put pressure on legislators to establish a Christian state that leads to totalitarianism. The revival that God is calling for, though, is a revival of the grace of God that washes me from my sins and washes you from your sins. And the grace of God gives us the power. The grace of God gives me the, the power to live a life of obedience and love for Christ. It's a revival of God's law. It's a return back to God's law and to all of God's law, including the Sabbath. In the dark centuries when the church in Europe, when it used the power of the state to put to death those who refused to submit to her dogmas, there was a faithful Christian uh, that was about to suffer martyrdom for his faith. He was going to be burned at the stake. And then a Christian brother came to visit him in his prison cell, and they discussed that, uh, whether their Christian hope would sustain them while their body was consumed by the torture of the flames or if their physical pain would be too much and their faith would fail. This brother was, uh, was an so anxious to know because he was sure that, he would, uh, when it, that when it was his turn that would come next uh, that led him to the stake that he, uh, he wanted some sign and uh, that would be an indication that his brother, even in the midst of s his suffering for Christ, that Christ had sustained him. And so it would be a tremendous encouragement to him uh, when, as he faced the same thing. And so the brother that was going to be burned at the stake first, he agreed. And, um, and then as he, was, uh, he, as he was being burned at the stake there uh, that day when he, 
he was uh, placed there in front of the, the stake and uh, tied on there. And then they put all of the, the wood around him. They lit him on fire. And the other Christian brother, he was watching. He couldn't take his eyes off of, off of him. He was watching so closely, looking for a sign that God had helped him through that hard time. And then there, when it seemed like the, the man had, uh, had died and how he had, um, it, was, it was kind of quiet, he raised his arms up to heaven that God had sustained him. And that was the sign that he needed, the sign that he was looking for, that God sustained him through that hard time, sustained him through the, the, uh, the time of persecution and the burning, at, burning alive at the stake. And so to these scenes, we have a promise. In Revelation 14, verse 12, says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Friends, we can claim that promise as ours and that God wants us to be these saints. And by His grace, we can be through a complete and full surrender to Him. The Christian's hope is valuable enough to keep even amidst the most agonizing suffering. Friends, Christ is calling you to be one of His own, to live His life of joy, His life of faith and hope and courage. He's appealing to you to stand with those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. He's appealing to you to determine to live for Him. Friends, will you do it? Will you stand with the faithful followers of Christ? Will you stand with the faithful followers of Christ throughout all the ages? Will you stand with Jesus? Friend, He is willing to stand for you. If you will stand for Him, if you want to stand for Him, friends, will you just stand with me now? As we pray together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You We thank you because uh, when we place our faith and our trust in you, that you will help to keep us. Lord, you are the author and finisher of our faith. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be afraid of the persecution that comes because you've promised to be with us, to never forsake us. You've promised to sustain us through it all. And Lord, we're standing because we want to be those people. We want that patience of the saints. We want to be the people who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Lord, continue to work on our hearts. Prepare us for your soon coming. There are some here who are still trying to decide. To decide what your will is for them and what your plan is for them. Lord, make it clear. There are some here who may be struggling with uh, some addiction or something in their life, some sin in their life. Lord, give them the victory. Help them to recognize your grace and to give it all to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.